Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Coffee Talk with Shell, where there's always variety in life. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We have a really important segment tonight, a very special segment, a cause near and dear to my heart. And let me start with sharing a brief background as to why I'm a living example of this particular cause for equal rights for adoptees, adult adoptees, especially in my home state of Texas. I was sick from ages 14 to 24. My my parents took me to many, many doctors, no doctor could figure out why. By the time I was age 24 and in college, I almost died. I became very anemic, very out of sorts. Long story short, I go to the adoption agency. I get registered. At the end of the tour, the representative there hands me a letter and says, oh, this is for many years, y'all. This had been in my file. And in this letter from my biological mother, it tells me her medical history that I needed many years prior. Says she has endometriosis, a female disease I'd never even heard of. I get on the internet, I look it up, trying to understand it. From that point on, we go through the reunion process. She skips ahead at the end and eventually goes ahead and finds me. We never finished the reunion process with the restrictions through the agency. Side note there. The point of this is that, for me personally, it it was found too late. I'm lucky to even be alive, to be quite honest. I went through five years of surgeries and treatments, and I had to have a hysterectomy to save my life at age 29 because it was my doctor's second worst case. It turned into cancer. My doctor's first worst case was a woman 30 years older than me. So on that note, now you understand why this cause particularly excuse me, especially for me, is near and dear to my heart and why I'm about to introduce some special people, amazing people. They are from STAR, also known as Texas Adoptee Rights in Austin, Texas. It was founded by a Texas adoptee in 2013. It's a 501c4, a nonprofit social welfare organization formed to engage in political advocacy. I'm going to give you a brief background on each of their board of directors, and then we'll get started with lots of really good questions for y'all. So the first one is Marcy Purcell, their president. She's a reunited adoptee who has her original birth certificate from New Jersey after legislation passed there. Marcy's been with Texas Adoptee Rights since 2014. She holds a BA in psychology. She's certified in psychological first aid. She has over 25 years experience providing advocacy for underserved and marginalized people in rural and urban communities. She has a big heart for Texas since her adoptive father was a native Texan and her birth father is also a Texan. Both may I mention in support of adoptee access. She has lived in Texas since 1992. Don Scott, their vice president. She's an adoptive mother and an open relationship with her daughter's biological family. Dawn feels that this special connection critically empowers and informs her parenting and fuels her passion for the restoration of the original birth certificate access equality for adult adoptees. After serving nine years on the board of Adoption Knowledge Affiliates, Dawn joined STAR in 2014 as a founding director. Also noted, Rod Lynn, 
Rod is their treasurer. He's current president of Adoption and Knowledge Affiliates as well. He's an adoptee who recently united with several of his birth family. For over the past three years, he's been actively involved in advocating for Texas adoptees' unencumbered right to the original birth certificate. Rod is also a licensed professional counselor and a national certified counselor with 25 years of experience in the mental health field. Ann Bingham, their secretary, is in reunion with her adult daughter. She has a seven-year-old child at home as well. Her experience with a closed adoption and reunion informs her understanding of adoption practices and adoptee rights as civil rights. She actively participated in the effort to pass in the 2017 Texas Legislative Session. Also noted is Sherry Ferguson tonight with us, board member at large. She's a Texas-born adoptee in reunion with her biological parents. She provided testimony for her adoptee rights during the 2015 and 2017 Texas Legislative Session. Prior to becoming a mother, she worked in the medical profession. She's been a licensed vocational nurse since 1986. As an adoptee, she understands the difficulty involved in obtaining family health history and ancestry. She's a volunteer search angel helping adoptees for over 20 years. A couple more to note. Dr. Joellen Peters, board member at large. She's a psychologist, mother of two teenage boys, and an adoptee rights advocate. Dr. Peters initially began working with families affected by adoption when she went through her own adoption reunion after finding her biological parents 20 years ago. She now works with adult adoptees, birth parents, and adoptive families in her private practice. Her initial advocacy work started in 2015 when she began talking with legislators at the Capitol in Austin. Last but not least, Susan Ostrand, board member at large. She's an adoptive parent and has worked diligently over the last year advocating for adoptee rights in Texas. Before becoming a full-time stay-at-home parent, she worked as a biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wild Service, Wildlife Service, excuse me, biologist at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, that is, where she worked primarily with Pacific salmon species. Susan is currently working toward her teacher certification and enjoys spending spare time with her husband and three children, as well as carving out chunks of time for long-distance runs. So we're going to get started tonight. I'm going to ask Marcy the first question, so let me make sure I get them all on air with me here in just a moment. So bear with me here. All right, I'm just opening up the audio for all of them here. One, two, three, four. I think we're still missing one person, just to let them know. I see one, two, three, four, five, six. So I'm going to do a roll call real quick. Marcy, are you there? I'm here. Yep. Okay, Marcy. Dawn, are you there? I am. Okay. Rod, are you there? Yes. Anne, are you there? I'm here. Sherry, are you there? <laughs> no, I think we're missing Sherry. Jolyn, you're there, right? Yes, I'm here. Hello. And Susan, you're there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, so we're missing Sherry. All right, so side note there. All right, so I'll keep looking for her call. All right, in the meantime, Marcy, let's get started. If you don't mind helping us out in the 
beginning here. I wanted to ask you, what, what exactly is the mission of Texas Adoptee Rights? So um, Texas Adoptee Rights was founded um, in 2013, actually, uh, after a failed attempt to pass legislation by uh, another organization. And the mission is to restore unfettered access to original birth certificates for adult adoptees. I apologize to interrupt, Marcy. I think we have Sherry on the line. Sherry, is that you now? That's me. Hi. Okay, Yay. wonderful. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> we just did the introductions, and I just asked Marcy the first question, so I just want to make sure you are with us. All right, we're all on board now. Perfect. I got it. Thank you. And, and Marcy, I appreciate you answering that question. Um, to follow up, I want to ask you and then the rest of y'all as well, what inspired you to become involved with STAR? So um, as mentioned in my bio, New Jersey passed a law in 2014, and birth certificates became available in 2017 for New Jersey-born adoptees. And um, I always say that I was unlucky enough to be born in New Jersey. <laughs> Not really. Um, but I got, I got to Texas as fast as I could, right? So um, so I have lots of Texas connections, but um, fortunately I was born in New Jersey where they did restore uh, access, for, uh, access to uh, birth certificates for adults who are born there. I received my birth certificate. Um, while I was waiting, I became aware of the effort in Texas to restore access and um, was invited to participate in that process, and I felt um, I felt I felt I guess a, a gratefulness toward the folks that worked in New Jersey for the 34 years, uh, and I was really unaware of their work for the for that full duration, um, and uh, was really just felt compelled to help here in Texas to uh, to, to to get that same right for Texas-born adoptees. That's wonderful. That's a great crossover. Wow. And Don, what inspired you to become involved with STAR? Well, uh, like most things in life, my daughter is at the heart of that um, inspiration. Um, basically, I've learned everything I need to know to be a good parent to her um, from adoptees, uh, basically from my entire involvement with Adoptionology Affiliates, um, hearing adoptees talk about all of these issues for so long, um, it just gave me the sense that, you know, when I found out what the law was about here and how it was discriminating, um, I just felt that a legacy that I could give back to them and to my daughter would be to become part of the actual effort of restoring equality. And I do believe everyone deserves their truth. And my daughter has hers, and I just don't feel it's right that others don't. Well said. Very well said. Thank you, Don. And Rod, what about you? What inspired you to come into ball? Well, well, the uh, the originator of Star, uh, the lady who brought us all together, um, was a search angel who found my birth family, and um, then. You know, so I, I, at first, I felt something of an obligation to do it, but then when I actually received my birth certificate um, and and discovered that 
wow, I really was born. Uh, it's, um, uh, you know, I, I was absolutely committed. Mm. Wow, that's a profound statement. Yeah. But you're right. I hear you on that. And Anne? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, sir. And Anne, what about you? What? Why did you become involved? Yeah, I reunited with my uh, birth daughter when she was 24, and I discovered I just had no idea that she didn't have access to her original birth certificate and that there were really key parts of her identity that were missing that she didn't have access to. And um, it just, you know, through knowing me, she now has that. But it just made me realize how essential this is and how many people are really missing really fundamental pieces of their information. And it's just so important. So that's what's brought me here. Most definitely. Good for you. That's wonderful. And Sherry, what about you? Um, I'm a Texas-born adoptee and a volunteer search angel. I searched for my own birth family for over 15 years. Having access to my original birth certificate would have made that so much easier. Um, Once I found my own family, I continued working with adoptees um, trying to find their own birth families and saw them struggle with not having access to the basic information of their family surname where their parents were born, those kinds of things that would have just made their search so much easier. Mm. Huge domino effect. And Joe Ellen, what about you? Why did you become involved? Well, as uh, my bio says, I'm adopted myself, and uh, for the past 25 years or so, I've been involved in the Austin adoption community, starting with Adoption Knowledge Affiliates. And... um, as a psychologist, I mean, so I've been just involved in the community, but I think to do advocacy, it was the fact that in my private practice, I see so many people who are harmed by secrecy. And um, and then also I see all the work that needs to be done to kind of repair or work on um, the damage that all that lost time has caused or that loss of information has caused. And um, and and also then the wonderful you know get to witness a lot of wonderful reuni- reunions as well and are just the the joys of people getting information they didn't have before for whether they're in reunion or not just people are very pleased about that it's very meaningful to them and so I just said you know I'm going to work to stop this nonsense and change the laws. Yes, ma'am. Definitely. That's wonderful what you do. And I appreciate you sharing the the negative and the positive with your own professional experience like that. And Susan? Yes, ma'am. And Susan, why did you become involved? Well, um, back in 2016, um, I happened to come across a post on Facebook from a former board member asking people to call their legislators to voice their support for um, access to original birth certificates. And as an adoptive parent, I wasn't even familiar that adoptees in Texas didn't have access. So um, I decided to uh, contact my state legislature and, or state legislator, and when I learned that she was also an adoptive mom, I really felt compelled to communicate with her, thinking that maybe adoptive parent to adoptive parent, we could have a conversation, um, even if our positions might be different. Um, And I was able to secure a meeting with her staff in January of 2017. Um, But to make a long story short, I left that meeting just feeling so overwhelmingly intimidated and disheartened. 
And um, as time went on, that experience just compelled me to become more involved. I didn't want anybody else to have that experience, and I wanted to speak up and not feel intimidated. Um, wonderful example why. of turning. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry, Susan. I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just going to say that's a wonderful oh, no, example no. of turn, turning something like that. You know, like you said, feeling intimidated and and turning around to to prevent that from happening to anyone and feeling better and and helping your you know others. But I, I'm so sorry that happened to you as well, though. I hate to hear that. But good for you for always not being afraid to reach out to another legislator as well as adoptive parents. So good for you. Right. Thank you. You're welcome. And Marcy, back to you now. Are you there? <laughs> yes, still here. Yep. <laughs> so about the history of adoption in Texas, can you tell me more so when and why were these records sealed from adoptees? Okay. Yeah. So in, in every state is different. Uh, this is a law that affects, uh, that is a state by state law in Texas. The records weren't actually sealed to the parties of the adoption until 1973 with the implementation of the family code. And when that happened, um, the records were sealed to, to the adoptive parents and the birth parents and also to the adoptees. A lot of people believe that it was, it was related to birth parent privacy. However, that's really not the impetus. In, uh, at, during that time, that legislative session, Senator Adams was, was um, approached by a group of adoptive parents who really wanted to see the record sealed because they were fearful that their privacy might be violated and that the birth parent may obtain information about their whereabouts. So the legislation was actually brought about by a group of concerned adoptive parents. Now, we know now that those concerns are really unwarranted. There's so many things that prevent that from happening um, in this day and age, and it was really born out of, unfortunately, born out of fear. And they weren't really considering the rights of adult adoptees at the time that that was implemented in Texas back in 1973. Those adoptees did grow up, and in about 1991 or thereabouts, really even before then, but the noise got very loud in the late 80s and 90s about how unfair these laws were as these adoptees were cut off from their information. So um, in 2005, there was a compromise struck. Uh, there was a group, TexCare, who worked diligently for quite a number of years, and um, they were offered um, this compromise that mainly impacts step-parent adoptions, and that is that when the record is sealed, if you know the names exactly as they're listed on the original birth certificate, you can get a copy. And it's very specific to Texas, and like I said, primarily impacts step-parent adoptions. Uh, sometimes adoptees may be able to ascertain the names of their uh, birth parents, and if they are able to and able to list them exactly as they are in the original birth certificates, then they can also get a copy. A lot of a lot of times people don't realize that um, the record isn't sealed until the adoption takes place. So for someone like me who was adopted at three years old, 
um, or someone who might have been adopted at eight or nine or even a foster uh, youth who ages out without ever being adopted, that birth certificate, that original birth certificate, is their primary, um, is their only birth certificate until the adoption takes place. And that just further illustrates that the law was not passed to protect birth parent privacy um, because it happens not upon relinquishment, but upon adoption. Mm. That's really interesting. I do want to add a couple of tidbits on that from my personal experience. One is TexCare. I know exactly who TexCare is because they helped my biological mother find me, you know, in the early stage of the reunion process through the registry at the adoption agency. And that's why we didn't finish the process, which is probably a blessing in disguise, quite honestly. And secondly, I wanted to mention from my own personal experience of being a reunited adoptee since I was at age 24 in 1998, I have, you know, I've lost my birth date, but I have the information. I requested and, and received my original birth certificate. However, I requested it three times. The first twi- two times I received my adoption certificate, although I put all the information needed for my original birth certificate. Hmm. I'm not trying to discourage. I'm just trying to be realistic. So just keep fighting everybody. <laughs> and yeah. Where I, yes. yes, we hear that a lot. We hear that a lot from people that the system that's currently in place is failing adoptees at multiple points, um, multiple times over. So your story, um, is it resonates. Sadly, huh? And yes. Mar- Marcy and Sherry, I each uh, I have the same question for each of you. Um, I'll start with I'll start with Sherry, and then we'll go back to Marcy. So Sherry. What is the current law and process to obtain an emergent, original, excuse me, original birth certificate for adoptees? Well, currently, um, an adoptee cannot, if they don't know any information on the birth certificate, they can apply all day long and they will not receive an original birth certificate if they know the name of their birth mother and they put it on the application um, in the exact same format that is on the birth certificate, they could obtain a copy. If they put something like put a middle name and that middle name is not listed, they will not get it. If they put a birth father name and the birth father is not on there, they cannot get it. The problem with that is that most adoptees do not know the name of their birth family. That's why they're seeking the birth certificate um, in the first place. Um, in that situation, then people can, they can, um, petition the court and of of their adoption. So their adoption was 30 years ago. They have to go to the the judge that's currently presiding over that. And so someone that doesn't know you, that may never meet you, gets to make a decision about if you can have access to your information. And in most counties, you will be denied the request um, to the judge to open up your adoption file. The judge can open the file and and give you access to the birth certificate through vital records, but it's at the behest of the judge um, at that time. Mm. Wow. And that's interesting side note there that I, I was wondering that about majority of the cases you mentioned, most judges deny that request. Wow. I always wondered that if that, you know, how often does that actually happen where the judge grants it? And gives you the access. Wow, how sad. And and Marcy, did you want to mention any other challenges with this particular system? 
Yeah, the court system is really cumbersome. Um, so most, uh, I guess, I think the average reading level for te- for the average Texan is sixth grade. So, you know, we're talking about um, people from small towns. We're talking about people, um, you know, who have varying levels of education. Some absolutely proficient in the process. Um, others really intimidated by that process. So, so you have um, just this very intimidating um, process, and then you also have the hardship of getting to the court of adoption. It's, a lot of times people feel like if I'm going to court, if I'm going before a judge, I've done something wrong. So it leaves one feeling like if I'm even asking for this information, there's something wrong with me. There's a lot of this in that in the whole the way the whole system works. There's a lot of these discrepancies where the person who is seeking the information is the one left like there's something wrong with them. And I feel like the the court system very specifically does that. Um and it's it's challenging, it has varying results. There are two hundred and fifty four counties in Texas and each county is um has you know, has a different uh idea of what good cause is, the way the statute reads is the judge has to deem good cause. Everyone deems good cause differently. Some judges will say, okay, you're an adult, here you go, here's your original birth certificate. Other judges will say, I'm so sorry, but, um, you know, no. <laughs> and they, they, some list a reason, some don't, they don't have to list a reason. And there's no appeal process. So if the judge tells you no, you have to go back, refill out the form, schedule another court date, and try again. If you're coming from, you know, Laredo and you're headed to Dallas or you're, or you're coming from out of state because many Texas-born adoptees now live in other states, um, it can be a, really, a real hardship to repetition the court uh, without that appeal process and, and, you know, getting to sort of move along in, in the thing you already started. No, you have to start from square one each time you petition the court. Wow. That is so frustrating indeed. And back to you, Sherry. What types of challenges would you say are out there right now for adoptees that do not have original birth certificates? Sherry, are you there with us? Oh. Oh, I apologize. Sherry, are you there now? I am. Can you hear me? There you go. Yes, ma'am. Sorry okay, about great. that. I had to click a um, certain button there. <laughs> yeah. The first challenge is just the, the lack of access to your basic information, not knowing your birth family's name, um, not knowing where your birth family is from, Um in addition, uh, adoptees can have difficulties of, uh, obtaining a passport. Those are the things that I've seen. And Marcy, why why do you say they need it? Yeah, uh, as Sherry said, passport, other government documents, sometimes without that original birth certificate, um, uh, the amended birth certificate is missing some information, and that flags it for Homeland Security. Uh, the reason that I wanted to obtain my original birth certificate was really just to kind of verify who I am, um, you know, throughout the course of my life. So I was adopted at three. So that's three whole years where I wasn't the person that I am now. Um, and even I, I found even in reunion, having a copy of my original birth certificate has helped solidify 
the relationships that I have with my biological family members and really makes me feel connected to my original biology. Um, it also can give you clues to your ethnicity uh, based on your last name. Um, it can be a piece of the puzzle there. Um, many birth certificates had wrong information listed on the amended, so it can you know, give you information that was either wrong or omitted from the amended birth certificate, again, helping you feel complete, giving you that first chapter of your life that you don't have without your original birth certificate. Lastly, and this is a big one for me, um, I learned in first grade that my original birth certificate was sealed to me along with my other adoption or pre-adoption information. And I remember learning that. I was doing a family tree project, right, that we all have to do, and some adoptees don't like those. Um, but regardless, right. we're, we're, you know, eight, nine years old doing our family tree. And, and on top of that, we're told by our parents, if we're lucky, that, that um, oh, no, that, that information is not available to you and, and won't be, not even when you're an adult. Well, that really left me feeling... <laughs> Like um, like I wasn't trusted, like there was something wrong with me or something shameful about my you know existence. You know what is so what is so wrong with me knowing my own information? Either how bad could it be, or you know I I must be you know I'm a shameful secret. My existence is there's something wrong with who I am, and I'm I know that I'm not the only adoptee who feels this way. So sealed records just sends this message to adoptees that we are somehow lesser than, that we are not treated equally under the law. And just any minority group, and we're 2% of the population, so we are a minority group, and any minority group not being treated equally under the law, that's that's just very stigmatizing. That's going to make um, you feel like there is something wrong with being adopted. And we've already got those messages out there floating around that, you know, what you know, that maybe there's something wrong with being adopted. And now here's the state actually, you know, codifying that, yes, indeed, you are different. You are not entitled to your information in the same way that everyone else is. I appreciate you sharing that. And uh, side note there, I mean, I agree with you. Many adoptees, sadly, including myself, have gone through those same feelings and thoughts. And um, one more tidbit, I have a confession to y'all. I mean, I've been a United adoptee, you know, since 1998, and I still have not requested a passport because of fear that I'll get denied. I've heard that so many times, so it's a great example there. And Don, on to you now. Um, you know, in 2015, Texas Adoptee Rights put forward the House Bill 984, fighting for the restoration of access to original birth certificates for adult adoptees born in Texas. And since 1997, every Texas legislative session has had a bill of this nature introduced by the adoption community for consideration, right? But this particular bill in 2015, carried by Representative DeShottle, a uh, Democrat from Beaumont, Senator Jessica. Creighton, Republican from Conroe. Say it again. Oh, it's Deschatel. Deschatel, thank you for correcting me on the pronunciation. No, I don't like to say people's names incorrectly. Deschatel, that's a pretty name. Uh, Right, yeah, like my name, exactly. (laughs) Democrat from Beaumont, Deschatel. And also Senator, is it Creighton? Yes. Am I saying it right? (laughs) Creighton, Republican from Conroe. Thank you. And and so uh, this particular bill from 2015, carried by these representatives, and garnered broad 
bipartisan support. They introduced this bill, Senate and House bill, in 2017 as well. So what has stopped these bills from being passed on? Oh, gosh, isn't that the magic bullet question, right? Um, so, yeah, we've had amazing champions, and we've had amazing advocates. And essentially, you know, we, we, ha- we enjoy a tremendous amount of success. We To start with, I want to just point out that we actually had um, a floor vote in the House in 2015, and there was only one nay we passed uh, Desitel was able to pass our bill in the in the House, one thirty-eight to one. So, essentially, we actually don't really get much objection. We don't have a whole lot of opposition. Um, we do have some powerfully uh, a powerfully placed um, senator who does not uh, who does oppose our bill, and for a variety of reasons, that has um, kind of been our main challenge. Um, and the thing is that most of the opposition and any, uh, any objections are really just very old mythology that floats around about adoption. Most people have heard, you know, or think they know uh, issues about adoption and, and that, oh, my gosh, well, won't that, you know, unsealing records, isn't that open, closed adoptions? Oh, my gosh, you know, we're going to end closed adoption. We're not going to have forever families. There's a lot of, um, there's just a lot of, unfortunate misinformation and we've debunked all these myths really um, with data Um, simply not true that um, that there's any impact on um, for instance there's no impact on the rates of abortion for instance that comes up a lot and you hear that a lot Um, in two states that never actually sealed their records um, the data shows they actually have higher rates of adoption and lower rates of abortion. So, you know, essentially our job has been to educate people about the actual facts, <laughs> the real data. Um, and when we do that, most of the, you know, almost, almost exclusively, we are embraced with support. In, pa- in fact, most people, because we have been fighting this, as you can see, as, you know, for two sessions consecutively, um, they're surprised that we're still fighting. You know, they're all, they're really with us. Um, we get so much, we actually get more overwhelmed every time we go to the Capitol, which is, you know, very frequently, <laughs> you know, probably uh, I feel like I should get a, an extra parking pass um, for volume of, of visits. But uh, the, the opposition is very limited and the desire to help a unit to assist in this is very great. So the bipartisanship is one of the amazing aspects of this bill. Um, those two, those two um, legislators worked hand in hand. Creighton was amazing. He's, he was an awesome champion for us. And, you know, there's, there's, it's very difficult to pass any bill and timing is against you. So there are many ways to kill a bill <laughs> and it takes a, a lot of magic to make, uh, to make it happen. So I'm still very uh, optimistic that because we have such a groundswell um, of support, really, um, that this could be our year. Um, but those those objections are very easily um, refuted. So it's it's just our job to continue educating, really. Most definitely. Wow. 
Very insightful. I appreciate that. And like you said, I mean, I keep thinking persistence and perseverance will eventually pay off and hopefully sooner than later, of course. That is. And, that is. Yes, ma'am. And Marcy, what would you say are the objections of your opposition, if any? Yeah, so um so the main um the main opposition and this is I mean this is very public information. So I'm going to go ahead and share that Senator Campbell really is the is sort of the the um obstacle uh for us and we do continue to hope that she takes a second look at the data that we presented. Uh her main objections have been um have been a few, there's a few of them. One is that abortion rate that Dawn was talking about. And I'll just echo, yes, uh, Kansas and Alaska never closed. There's also a number of states that have opened their records across the country. And according to the CDC data that's independently collected, the abortion rates have either stayed the same or gone down. The other states that have passed the the, uh, the records uh, open records laws in the last few years have seen that data, and it's actually changed minds. There were people who went into this objecting over that myth, that idea, um, that feeling that that may be the case about abortion, and they were uh, pro-life groups. They actually did take a hard look at the data, and then they 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 came around and supported the bill because they saw that actually the rates either stayed the same or, in many cases, dropped in the states that had passed. So so we know now that that's just an archaic myth, this idea that abortion would have any sort of tie to whether adoptees could get their information. Um, the, other, the other ideas are that, um, that an adoptive parent, when they adopt, they're promised a forever family and they feel somehow threatened by an adult going out and gaining access to their original birth certificates. The real irony in that argument is that a lot of the folks that seek their original birth certificates actually are not interested in reunion. So we, you know, we have a reunion registry, um, but that doesn't solve it for the folks who don't want to have a reunion with these 100 people over here to get their most basic information. So there are a lot of adoptees who would want a copy of their original birth certificate for the data that is on that certificate. For them, it has nothing to do with reunion. But there are, there are um, <clears throat> you know, still a few adoptive parents and the one namely that is opposing our bill, who who just feel, I think, threatened by the idea. Um, it's, it's, oh, it's um, I choose my words wisely here, but it's the idea that meeting someone as an adult could somehow abolish a lifelong relationship with your adoptive parents that raised you and that loved you and cared for you, um, it, you know, I, I it doesn't really. I can't connect those dots. Um, I think the relationship stays the same with your adoptive parents um, as it was before you found your information. It's uh, so, but there is that fear there for um, for some of the the folks. It, I I find in my talking to people that it's it's primarily older adoptive parents who maybe weren't. Um, you know, weren't expecting this type of thing, and, and so they're sort of caught off guard. But even those folks tend to come around because they want what's best for their adult children, and they want their adult children to feel equal under the law and be treated equally under the law. But that is another point of opposition we hear. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to think of some of the others. I, You know, most of the others have sort of gone by the wayside with DNA testing, 
Ancestry.com has, I think, 15 million people now in the DNA database. So folks who are looking for reunions are really just going to Ancestry. They're not interested in, um, you know, like uh, traditional forms of search if they don't have to be. And so really the quickest way now is to do your DNA, um, put it in there, and, and connect with your biological family members. So this bill really is not about reunion um, in the way that it's been, I guess, portrayed, it, it really is about that basic right to your own information and verifying who you are uh, through obtaining that document and also just being treated equally under the law. Well, the just basic human rights indeed. And, and also, Marcy, now kind of on a more positive note, looking forward to the future and currently very exciting news here. So now here we are in 2019, and a House Bill 2725, House Bill 2725 that is, was filed by Representative Gina Kalani, Democrat from Katy, Texas. And I understand she's an adoptee herself. Can you explain what, what does this bill do now? So it's Representative Kalani is how she pronounces that. And, um, I apologize. She, um, yes. She, oh, cool. no, no Thank problem you. at all. Um uh, we were thrilled to have her um, to agree to sponsor this bill. Uh, she's she's um, really passionate about the issue. She herself is adopted, and that is part of her her public story that she tells as her reason to to um, to sponsor this. And we reached out to her um, when she identified herself with a in a conversation with Representative Howard as an adoptee, and we just thought that that was the perfect combination to get this bill um, through through the legislature, because we had that one voice on the Senate side um, maybe talking about how adult adoptees were not entitled to their information. And having having a um, someone that's a member of the legislative body really speak about why this is so important, um, we feel like that's a really strong narrative. And um, we're really optimistic about the passage of this bill. We really feel like this is our time and... Um, and we think that Representative Kalani is going to do a terrific job. Oh, I agree. Very exciting. Very exciting indeed. And I mean, I understand, of course, she's an adoptee. Oh, but and the, what? Go ahead. What does the bill do exactly? Yeah, the construction of the bill right. is. Um, so it does. It does the same things that the last uh, the last bills did in the last two uh, legislative sessions. This bill. Um, Primarily, the main focus of the bill is to grant adult adoptees, 18 and over, access to their original birth certificates, period. Uh, coupled with that are two forms. One is the uh, birth parent um, ability to express on a contact preference form their wish for contact. So this isn't going to be relevant to every adoptee. Some adoptees already have contact. Some adoptees are not interested in contact. But for those adoptees who are wondering, where does my birth parent stand on, on, on their feelings on contact, this is a piece of paper that's going to be very useful for them to know where their birth parent stands. Uh, it's also, for the first time, a really nice vehicle for birth parents to be able to express their wishes for contact. So birth parents will be... Um, will have the ability to express how how they feel about being contacted, um, and this is just a kind of so it, it kind of has a dual purpose. Uh, it has no bearing on whether an adoptee receives their original birth certificate, but it is just a nice venue for um, you know for communication. 
before contact has even been made. The, the three choices are I wish contact, I wish contact through an intermediary of my choosing, or I prefer no contact. So they get to choose which one of those uh, they prefer. And then the other thing that's in there is a family medical history form. And again, this is going to be probably most useful for people who don't want contact, right? The, the birth parent will be able to fill out their family medical history form, feel good about being able to pass that information on um, while maybe not having contact with their adoptee, um, adult adoptee. And then um, for the adult adoptee who may not wish to reach out to their birth parent, they still have what, what seems to be the primary reason that adult, that adult adoptees list for wanting their information is that medical information um, right alongside the fact that they do want to be treated equally under the law is that family medical history so this will give adult adoptees access to that family medical history whether they're interested in a reunion or not very interesting that's great I mean I can't think of any other option they could fit on there honestly you know it sounds <laughs> just perfect just perfect and on to Joellen, I wanted to mm-hmm. ask you, from your experience, who have you seen support this type of legislation so far? Um, but one of the wonderful things about this type of legislation is that it has very broad support uh, locally, nationally. It has political support from all the senators and uh, members of the House of Representatives in, in Texas who has um, who have either had authorship or voted for the bill before and bipartisan political support, which is wonderful. Um, Professional groups, uh, entities, and individuals have supported it. And um, also Vice President Pence uh, created similar legislation in Indiana. Um, It's just got a, a broad base of such support. We currently are really excited because the American Academy of Adoption and Assisted Reproductive Attorneys came out with a letter in support of this kind of legislation and getting adult adoptees access to their original birth certificates. So that's a you know very large group of attorneys who are inter- who are supporting this bill. Concerned United Birth Parents um, is another group that uh, is in support of this bill. Right to Life in Michigan, Indiana, Georgia, and Ohio are in support of similar bills. And um, more locally in Texas, we have a a very large adoption agency, Buckner Adoption Services, that just wrote a letter of support in terms of this bill as well. Um, So it just kind of goes on and on. Catholic Charities in New York, um, Family Tree DNA, just all kinds of groups who have supported that, that similar bills or this legislation in particular. And, uh, and as Dawn had mentioned earlier, in 2015, the bill just easily passed the Texas House of Representatives 138 to 1. And so a lot of bipartisan support for that. A whole lot. Wow. Yeah. That's wonderful yeah. news. Tons of supporters there. The more the better. Mm-hmm. Definitely definitely milestones with some of the, the more recent supporters you mentioned there too, Joellen. That's wonderful news. And yes. regarding the medical history aspect, Susan, why do you say this is critical? Oh gosh, I I I have a story that actually recently happened last year that's so important to me. Um, We don't have any medical history in our family uh, for my kids. 
Um, however, we do have information on their ethnicity, uh, what country they were born in. And, um, and I, I'd like to note there are a lot of adoptees uh, that, that have an amended birth certificate do not know their ethnicity. And that can, just that knowledge right there can be so important. Um, back in 2012, um, a long time ago, I, I became aware of some peer-reviewed uh, journal research that had been done um, on uh, people who had been born in the same country as my kids. And um, they, it, it said that they had a greater chance of genetically inheriting an enzyme that converts medication more rapidly than usual. It was always something that stuck in the back of my mind. And um, uh, last year I became aware, our dentist told us that um, one of our kids would have to have some major surgery. And so I went to our pediatrician and I said, hey, I, I really want this genetic testing done. I just, I just want to know before, before he has the surgery. And um, turns out that one of my kids did have this, did genetically inherit this enzyme. And um, it, it, it made common medications that are, are normally prescribed during surgery possibly life-threatening. And so we were oh. able to use this information, and a surgeon was able to use the information to change the drugs he would have routinely prescribed during and after the surgery. And, I oh. mean, I just felt so thankful because um, a routine surgery could, could have had deadly consequences for our family. And um, just another note to that, um, there are people that say that these tests exist, and it's so wonderful that they exist, but they can be very expensive. And um, I know from our experience, even though our pediatrician approved the test, um, it was not approved by our insurance. And um, it, we, we have thousands of dollars worth, worth of bills. And I, am, I don't mind because it, it saved my kid's life. And it, it's totally worth it. But there are families out there that, and adoptees out there that, that may not be able to afford these tests. And I think they're so necessary. It's necessary to know this information. So that's just my personal experience with it. So it's very wow. important to me. Well, I'm so glad your son, you know, is doing better and that they, that you did get the answers you seek for him and, Oh, Absolutely, and he'll have that information for he'll have that information for later on. I mean, he will know what medications he can and can't take. So it's great. Wow, it's worth it. Definitely. Well, thank goodness, Mike. Oh my goodness, me. And Joellen, did you would you like to add also why you why you believe it's critical with medical history? Sure, I'll add quickly. Um, first saying thank you and Susan for sharing your own personal stories about why medical history is important. I have my own personal story, but in the interest of time, I'll just let that slide. But um, I want to say, because uh, your stories illustrate it so well, um, but it is uh, something that in the past, I don't know if it's been five years or the past decade, but that the Surgeon General and other national medical organizations have come out and said one of the most important bits of information you can get from people when you're doing a medical interview is their family history. It's one of the most important pieces for diagnosing people, folks. And so um, when we don't have that information, we're sitting in our doctor's office going, I don't know, which I did for 30 years. And then when I finally had information, you know, when my dermatologist sees me now, she walks in and she, she told her new staff person the other day, 
you know, Joellen Peters is, um, you know, she has a strong family history of skin cancer. And so, you know, she comes in twice a year and we make sure we, we look her over really well. And, you know, it's important. Most definitely. Thank you also for sharing. Thank you mm-hmm. both. <laughs> and, and, Anne, I, I know Marcy preference form, excuse me, the context preference form earlier, Marcy kind of explained that bit. But I wanted to ask you back on that topic, how would you say it it empowered birth mothers and adoptees? How would you sure, say that? Yeah. Um, well, I think it gives birth parents a voice, um, maybe, you know, for the first time in closed adoptions, to have a voice to say that they do want contact, um, what you know, and how that, that can happen. Um, I think it's worth noting that in states that have a contact preference form, um, like less than 1%, a very, very um, – small percentage of birth parents choose no contact. Um, the, you know, I, I think Marcy also maybe alluded to this, that many adoptees are going to social media now. Um, you know, I think we've all seen, you know, pictures of people holding signs saying, you know, I'm looking for my birth mother. I was born here on this day. I mean, it's so public. Um, and, you know, or taking to DNA, um, which, you know, frequently people land at least on a second cousin. Um, and then they go through that person to figure out, like, who is my, you know, birth, who are my birth parents? And these are really, you know, it, it, I think this is all something that's so emotional that it deserves privacy. And by having a contact preference form, it allows people to not only be really clear about communication, but then it establishes that privacy instead of, and I think, it, you know, I don't, I don't know very many people who really want to put themselves on social media with signs <laughs> and have it go viral. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's like a really, you know, a, you, ha- you have to jump through a lot of hoops and be very public. And I think that it serves both adoptees and birth parents to, to just make it really clear from the outset um, how they can, um, for those who choose, to, you know, uh, be in contact, how they can do that. And I think it gives adoptees the knowledge they need to say, like, they can choose their own path. Basically, like, I know what the desire is. Now I get to decide um, if I want to be in contact or not. Most definitely. That's one thing I've always said, even since the reunion process, that, uh, you know, as as an adoptee, we we want to feel empowered because we had no choice when we were adopted. So well said. Well said. Thank you. And, and and back to you, Marcy, how would you say the, I know we mentioned DNA a little bit earlier, but how would you say the DNA is the game changer now? Yeah, so um, so like Ann said, uh, people put their name in or, and their DNA, they spit in a tube and they put their DNA in and, and there's, there's at least four major DNA testing companies now, Family Tree DNA, Ancestry, uh, which a lot of people know about, um, my heritage is one that emerged uh, kind of quickly and uh, built up uh, very fast. And um, family tree, ancestry, 23andMe, a lot of people put in there. So there's, there's, there's over 20 million people combined, I believe, in those databases. Um, and if not yet, there will be by the end of session, right? Um, so there's just, there's just a lot of activity and people are finding each other, you know, um, especially domestic-born adoptees. Different for international folks, but even those um, markets are opening up and people are reconnecting, um, and it's only a matter of time, I think. 
So people put in, they get a second cousin match. But the problem with that is um, you may match to a second cousin, and that means your great aunt could be my birth parent, right? So then I say to you through the messaging that, that these things have, I say, wow, I see we match as second cousins. Did your great aunt give up a baby in 1968? And they say, I don't know, but I'm going home for Thanksgiving. Um, I'll ask when I'm there, right? And so they go, and they're sitting around the Thanksgiving table, or maybe they're out on the patio, and they say, hey, Aunt Bertha, did you give up a baby in 1968? So that's not private. (laughs) So the idea that Texas says that they're keeping birth records sealed for for birth parent privacy, uh, at least that's what some folks argue, um, it's actually having the opposite effect. So instead of being able to get a copy of my original birth certificate, and if I choose, right, to to um, find this person um, in a discreet way and and give them a, a phone call, no, no I, I don't have that option at all because records are sealed. I'm having to do this big public search either through Ancestry or one of the other databases and climb that family tree and ask whoever I connect to. Sometimes it's a half-sibling who didn't know they had another half-sibling. Sometimes it's a grandparent. Um, so you're connecting with maybe not necessarily the birth parent, but you're connecting with someone on your family tree, and then you're outing that birth parent before they've had a chance to tell the rest of their family. Um, and so it's just, it's just not, not the best-case scenario. Um, and, and sealed records, just amplifies that process. Um, it, it makes it more likely that it's going to be a public search instead of a private one. Mm. And wow, it's really interesting cause effect there with, with DNA being the game changer, Marcy. And would you say that would be kind of the same game changer cause effect or differently with social media in that regard with privacy, you know, versus anonymity? Same, same kind of same, same result, right? So, so if mm-hmm. I were somebody looking for uh, my birth mother, um, I might join, you know, um, the, you know, let's say I'm from Bryan, right? The Bryan uh, High School class reunion, 1971, and I would join that group. You know, maybe it's a closed group, but it's not a secret group. So I would join that group, and I take one of those posters, you know, with my. Um, with all my information, my non-identifying information, which Texas law does require that, that you obtain, uh, whether you get it or not, that's another story, but there, there is a law that says that you're entitled. I would take my non-ID information that gives her, you know, how old she was and uh, what were her hobbies, you know, what clubs she might have been in, and I would make my little poster up, and I would take a picture with myself in the picture, and surprise, I look just like my mother. And I would hold up the poster, and I would, I, and then I would put that picture of me holding the poster in that class reunion site, right? And bingo, yeah. maybe maybe my mother's not in there, but maybe her best friend that she went to college or high school is in there, and says, "Oh my goodness, it looks like Cindy gave up a baby in 1970." And before you know it, the whole town of Bryan knows, right? It's a small right. class, you know, uh, back in 1971, and. So, you know, all of her classmates know before she does. And these sound like hypotheticals, but this is how it's working. This is how it's operating. And, again, not very private. Uh, the other day my husband, who helps people, uh, helps adoptees um, who, are, who are in search, he solved the case by using Google, by taking the non-identifying information and kind of piecing it together and 
and just using Google, right? So there, there's really, in this information age, the argument that we're keeping records sealed to, to somehow give anonymity to someone is, is just really not. It's, it's, it's not why the law was created, and it's not actually how the law is working anyway. Oh, definitely agree. And on that note, from my personal experience, that's how my my biological mother found me early before the reunion process was over with with the tech, the help of text care was because I made I threw it off with a little loophole here. My middle name is Michelle, and I go by Shell, so that's where it threw her off. But she knew my age and my birth date of birth, and she knew I was in college in a, a guest public university. Which she was right, University of North Texas, and from that information narrowed down and her her angel search person was like you know we tried all this with the her michelle is the first name maybe it's her middle name but yeah so great example like yeah your husband what's unfortunate with that is that so we're doing this based on this idea of lifelong anonymity but really um it's not working right and in the meantime, we're denying the, equal, the human rights of all these adoptees. So it's not just that we're, we're ineffective in our goal of, of lifelong anonymity, which is an odd, which is just, you know, it's not a constitutionally guaranteed right to remain anonymous from someone. Um, but we're also in the process discriminating against an entire class of people. So we're, we're ineffective in the, in the goal that's, the supposed goal, and then at the same time, we're causing really a lot of psychological harm and logistical harm in the sense that people can't get their passports and other government documents and just creating all of these challenges based on this myth of, of a lifetime of anonymity. Most definitely. Mm. Oh, and can you tell me briefly, Marcy, a little bit about the privacy versus anonymity, six or Sixth Circuit of, of Pills, Tennessee. What is that exactly? Yeah, that court ruling. Yeah, so when Tennessee passed its um, its its uh, access law, they were one of the first uh, states to open up, uh, if not the first. And they passed it because uh, because of a, a black market adoption ring that was opposed, uh, uh, that was revealed. Georgia Tan, who had been adopting uh, infants, um, really stealing babies from mothers, telling the mothers that the babies had died, and so on. Um, this was discovered, and so there were so many adults now that were um, in, their adoption status was in question as to whether they were black market or not. In and around Tennessee, the states are in and around Tennessee, um, all the way pretty far though, pretty far out. But Tennessee was um, really the, their hand was forced, and they they went ahead and opened just opened the records to adoptees. Um, because of there was so much of an uproar um, about the the possibility of them being a black market adoption. So when Tennessee opened, there was one challenge to the law um, about this uh, idea of anonymity, and the Sixth Circuit Court of U.S. Court of Appeals ruled that um, that no, this was not a right. Uh, anonymity of a of a child from their parent, or vice versa, the the parent anonymity from their child was not a, a constitutional right. It did, it, they actually did take uh, that to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court um, uh, upheld uh, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling, which said that 
that um, that the law could go through, that Tennessee could open records to adult adoptees. So um, this has been through the courts, and it and it and it and it stand, withstands that. So we feel pretty confident that states will, you know, continue to pass these laws and 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 come into this 21st century, hopefully sooner rather than later. I'm into that. I must definitely agree. Thank you for sharing that. And Sherry, I wanted to ask you, can you tell us more about what is exactly the Texas Central Adoption Registry? Yes, the Texas uh, Central Adoption Registry is um, is through the Texas Health and Human Services uh, Department. It was began in 1983. Um, I, again, am a Texas adoptee. And I feel like I'm pretty connected to, you know, what how things work and stuff. But I had never heard of it um, until way after the Internet began. So um, for it to be available, no one would know that it was available. It's not like when it started, they sent a letter to every birth parent or to every adoptee to know that this registry was available. Um, even had I known about it and registered, um, there's a fee, and I know when I began searching, um, small fees of like $20 were really out of my budget. <laughs> and had I registered at that time, my mother had never registered. She was in a different state, and, of course, she didn't know about it. So it would have been, for me, a complete waste of time. I, In my 20 years of searching, I, I, do not, I haven't heard of a case of someone being reunited through the Central Adoption Registry. I, it, I'm sure it does happen, but I haven't personally witnessed it. So it doesn't really sound like it's about reunion then, huh? <laughs> no. Goodness. Right. But when you read the title, that's what you think. <laughs> and Rod, what would you say are some of the psychological issues going on with this? Oh, well, um, I mean, there, there's the loss of identity, for example, uh, and there are so many facets of this in that um, uh, having a sense of belonging is a huge factor. Um, it's, it's just like we're kind of out there someplace. Um, but I don't know where, and and then to to be able to commit to being open enough to allow other people in is a real challenge. Um, um, uh, well, shame. Um, it's it's so subtle. Um, earlier we were were talking about uh, something where uh, the um, oh, what was it? we didn't have um, oh about the birth certificate being told um, that we were less than, we get that message that we're less than, no matter what the parent says or the adoptive parent says. Um, and then, too, 
the cultural aspect around adoption, um, uh, more particularly uh, uh, in my age group, was uh, this idea of shame. Something is wrong with you if you had to be adopted. Um, so, and those things are a real challenge because sometimes they're very subtle and it takes a while to, you know, even with uh, uh, psychotherapy, it takes a while to work through that. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. Makes sense. Uh, but true. I guess another thing, you know, the uh, um, more adoptees tend to be um, diagnosed now with uh, ADD, ADHD, attention deficit, uh, hyperactivity, and that kind of thing. Um, So that's another issue, you know, the anxiety Issues are really prevalent with adoptees, drug and alcohol concerns. Oftentimes, is a big uh, issue. Mm. Wow, sad. Well, thank you, Rod and Joellen. Did you want to add anything as well regarding psychological issues? The only thing I would add is that there's not a lot of research out there about the effects of adoption and in particular um, the effects of secrecy, uh, for example, in either a closed adoption or with people not having access to their original birth certificates. And uh, But one, one thing we know is that adoptees are um, disproportionately uh, recognized or they, they seek mental health treatment disproportionately compared to non-adoptees. And um, I think all the things that Rod was talking about, one of the really core aspects of that is the secrecy, which leads to the shame and the not knowing who you are and and all the things that Rod was talking about. And I, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, yeah, I think, I'm sorry, I just had that on the tip of my coat, and I lost it. Uh, <laughs> okay. Dad, tell it. Uh-huh. <laughs> if I think of okay. it, I'll let you know. Let sorry. me know. Just just shout out. No worries. <laughs> and I have a question for the four adoptees here. Marcy, Rod, Sherry, and Joellen will go in order there. So starting with Marcy, how did knowing birth records were sealed impact you emotionally growing up? Like, were you aware and were you surprised to find out at age 18 that you could not get your information? How about you, Marcy? Well, for me, for me, I actually always knew that the records were sealed, um, you know, from a, a really young age. Uh, I, I Fortunately, I was adopted when I was three. So I did have some information uh, with regard to my identity that a lot of adoptees don't have. And it's, it's sort of ironic because we talk about this anonymity and this secrecy. But the, social, the federal Social Security office sent my adoptive parents um, a sheet of Social Security cards when, when my adoption was finalized. And one of the cards had my original name on it. And, the, and then the card next to it 
had a blending of my original and adoptive name, and then the final card had my adoptive name on it. So I actually knew my original name uh, my entire time I was growing up, and I understood that that was rare, that I was lucky to have that, and I was I was able to to use that to help you know to help me kind of solve the puzzle when I was 18. Um, it still took a long time and and um, several years, so it wasn't it wasn't a shoe in, but but it it certainly it gave me more than the average uh, the average adoptee, and I do think it's ironic that we talk about these state secrets and then the federal government is you know giving out my giving out my information. So um, so there's a real disparity, right? Inconsistency, and clearly no one was concerned with my birth mother's you know, identity being revealed. That wasn't another, it's another example of the fact that this isn't about, this isn't really about that. Um, I did not like the fact that my information was sealed from me. I understood, and the way I saw it was it was a big bank vault with a, with a big, you know, those big uh, locks that are like a big wheel, you know, that they spin and I felt like all the files, this is my visual, that all the files were, we're all of adoptees only. We're all behind that big bank vault, and there was just rows and rows of files of all the adoptees, you know. And I figured in the world, you know, we're all behind there, and um, and I and that, that that thing would seal that 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 you know they'd go in there and they'd retrieve something for for some reason, you know, the the, the keepers of the vault, and and then they would lock that big you know door behind them again so that no one was able to no one who was interested was able to get in there. And so that that's what it felt like was was that I that my information was was just a big government secret and, and not to be not to be had by me. And um I honestly still you know, I still feel I, I because I'm not from Texas, there's still some information that I'm not um allowed to have uh about the time that I was in foster care and it's very demeaning. It's very degrading to be treated. Um, uh, it's very degrading to be told that you don't have the right to your own information. Um, it's I, I can't really put it into words uh, except to say that it's it's beyond humbling. I, it's it's very discriminatory to be told that yes, we have a file sitting here with your information in it. And you're not entitled to it, even though it pertain it's all about you. And I don't you're think right. that non adopted people realize just how offensive and how uh dehumanizing that is. Thank you for sharing, Marthy. I agree. And Rod, what about you? What are your thoughts on the knowing birth records were sealed and packed you emotionally growing up? Yeah, it it did not. Uh, in the in the sense that uh, while I knew I was adopted for uh, quite some period of time, uh, probably since I was around, I'm going to say around nine or ten, um, I never had a desire to search. You know, like my wife would ask me, well. Uh, you know, don't you want to search to find your birth mom? I said, hell, I already have one that I have to deal with, one mom. Why, why would I want another one? And, and so 
stuff, you know. <laughs> no, I didn't want to know. That, <laughs> uh, you know, this is all that psychological stuff that goes on. Uh, most people would like to know where they came from. I know oftentimes I would, I would ask my adoptive parents about, well, particularly my dad, because I did not know uh, his family. I would ask him about them, and so that was the kind of substitute questioning um, that I used to try to get connected to the past, Hmm. you know. uh, Right. Yeah. So, and uh, the one thing, here's what I thought of uh, just a moment ago and couldn't spit out. Pre- and perinatal psychology uh, has done some incredible research and uh, which directly impacts uh, relinquishment, uh, you know, what happens at relinquishment and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, this is this is a huge topic now. Mm, interesting. Thank you, Rod. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Yes, indeed. Um, and sh- yes, ma'am. Go ahead, Sherry. So I I grew up with the narrative that um, my information was sealed, but my adoptive family thought that when you turn 18, you can find the information out, and that was not a fact at all. So after I had I was you know beyond 18, I'd already gone to college and and had a professional job as a nurse, and I I was very naive. I called the attorney that that arranged the adoption, and I was told, no, you can't have that information. You cannot have it, and there's there's no way for you to get access to it. So I grew up with this narrative believing that I would be able to get it, and that was very helpful to me because I could just compartmentalize that in my brain that, okay, well, I I can just find that out once I turn 18, and that's not the way it works at all. So I was very shocked to know that I did not have the same rights that anyone else had. Um, And it took me 20-plus years after turning 18 to to finally find my birth family. Mm. Thank you, Sherry. Goodness. And Joellen, what about you? Um, Growing up, I, I didn't have... I'm not sure if I had any awareness that the records were sealed... I knew records were sealed, but I didn't really think about my birth certificate, I guess. I knew that there was paperwork somewhere and that at some point I could get that if I wanted it. And I really didn't want it or wasn't so interested in it until I was probably mid-20s when I started making some more effort to actually get information. And then it was at that point, I think, and probably coming to going to Adoption Knowledge Affiliates in Austin, at that point that I became aware, oh, wow, I, you know, I, I don't have access to this information. And, um, and so I had to apply for my non-identifying information, and um, that took, I think, a year and a half for the state of Ohio to send that to me. Mm-hmm. And um, they made a mistake in there, and they accidentally left my birth name on there, um, and that was how... I did, you know, wow. had a search angel and did all kinds of detective work to to uh, figure out then from there who my birth family was. And um, so for me, the 
um, at the time when I was, you know, when I was a kid, not so much an interest. When I started to search, it was, you know, it was an obvious, it was a huge thing. If I had that document, I would have known some real names to be searching for, you know. Um, and so for me, the the use of my OBC was directly related to my ability to search but um, now, as I've become more informed about it, I certainly understand all the other reasons um, that people might want their original birth certificate, and um, and I see it, you know, really as a civil rights issue. Most definitely. Thank you, Joellen. Mm-hmm. And what would you say, Anne, are your thoughts regarding birth parent issues with adoptees not having access? Oh yeah, big, <laughs> big thoughts. Um, <laughs> I think that the, the thing is when, when you place your child, you're told you know that you're doing the best possible thing. <laughs> and um, for me, as a birth mother, it was just an act that was entirely out of love. And um, I never, I was horrified to find out that she didn't have access to her original birth certificate. And that mm. there were really essential pieces of her identity that she didn't know about. Um, you know, an act of love is not cutting her off from her I, her information. And so when we reunited, um, if she was 24, she didn't know her ethnicity. Um, and she had gone her entire life wondering. It was one of the first things she asked me um, because she knew there was something, you know, but she just didn't know what. And we had given that information to the agency. We provided the information, understanding that she would get it all um, because we believed so, um, this was just so important. And then with the current law, she must know me in order to get her birth certificate. I mean, she must have, as as has been said, she must have the exact name um, that's on the birth certificate to get this. and, And it's not fair to her. She shouldn't be required to track me down because she may not have wanted to, um, and that's her right. You know, she doesn't need, she shouldn't be required to know me in order to get fundamental information about herself. Um, and so, you know, it's just been really eye-opening and disappointing that important parts of her story were missing, and um, it's never what I would have wanted for her. So. Mm. Indeed. Well, I appreciate sharing that, Anne. That's very unselfish of you, so thank you. appreciate that. Yeah. And Michelle, uh, Michelle? yes, can I add a little? So there's also this, um, this the way that it impacts adoptees. It sounds minor, but it's just one other discriminatory um, obstacle is that uh, many adoptees want to join things like you know Daughters of the American Revolution. Uh, they want to know their genealogical history. They want to know what you know. What did their forefathers do? We watch this Finding Your Roots every week, and people are just so moved by learning that their sixth great grandfather, you know, fought in the in, you know, the Mexican American War or some 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 things like that, that that adoptees are completely cut off from. They uh without these relevant documents we can't prove our lineage. And and that sounds, you know, a little frivolous, but I remember when my daughter was applying to colleges and um considering history as her major, we knew that we could trace our roots two daughters of the American Revolution, but we didn't have the proper documentation because I didn't have my original birth certificate when she mm. was applying to colleges. And so there, were schol- there was scholarship money that was denied to my daughter 
because mm-hmm. we could not qualify for that. And, um, you know, it's just another one of those. And what it really does is, though, it reminds the adoptee, not only does it deny the actual opportunity to the scholarship money, but it reminds the adoptee this is something else that I can't provide not only for myself, but for my descendants. My children are cut off from their lineage. My children are cut off from their family medical history. And so this sealing of records has a generational impact. And, um, and you know, that's another thing that I think a lot of opponents don't consider uh, when they're, you know, raising their objections is a generational impact. Most definitely. Thank you for sharing that. Most- Man, I'm sorry you heard that happen to your daughter, too. That's so frustrating. That's a great example right there. And I'm, I'm going to take a side note here for a, a quick question for you all, kind of a little house test, because it's about almost 925. My show is actually on air until 10 o'clock, but, and I know you all's time is valuable. So I still have lots of questions to go. Do, do each of you still have time to stay over, or do any of you need to go soon? I'm fine. We can keep going. Yeah, I can stay over. I can keep going. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, so make sure, because if anyone needs to go, I wanted to make sure I got your questions asked. <laughs> All right, perfect. Yeah. Thank you all. I appreciate it, because these are really Thank good you. questions, and I really don't want to miss any of them. Thank you all. So we're, if teamwork makes the dream work, I always say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Dawn and That's Susan, cool. I have a question for you all, each of you. We'll start with Dawn. Do you say, what do you say to this question? Do adoptive parents support? Yeah. Um, The good news is um, enlightened adoption, uh, enlightened adoptive parents do support the the truth, right, for their for their children at whatever age. So I was involved for 15 years um, with adoption knowledge affiliates and learning and listening to all sides of the triad, right. And adoptive parents have been part of that narrative for so long. Adoptive parents want what is best for their, their kids, like all parents, right? And so when you realize that the truth is the most empowering thing, for me, I have all of it, right? I have all of Ava's knowledge. I have, her, I have direct contact with her family. There are extended blended family, essentially. And when you realize as a parent that, I feel so sad for parents that have had to operate from this really false paradigm of fear, you know, that you're only entitled to be a parent so long as that other one is hidden away and that the secrets that shrouded adoption were somehow, you know, made to be, you know, the standard. So unfortunately, because of the sealed records and secrets that undermined and disempowered everyone really but parents as well there are some you know people who are lingering in that and it's to me that's very sad you know I can't hardly imagine raising my daughter without knowing things that I know she's for instance recently had um, a horrible (laughs) bout uh, with migraines and some of those are triggered by food sensitivities and some of them are triggered by um, anxiety and different things and I have direct access to knowing, you know, what those things are. And so, so that has empowered me so much more than trying to guess everything. Um, but my point is also for nine years that I was uh, uh, involved on the board of adoption, all the affiliates and mentoring at peer to peer mentoring, 
I didn't hear any adoptive parent say that they didn't want to know everything that could possibly help their child, right? There are parents right. who adopted from internationally who have so much, you know, who, who were wise enough to get some of these uh, pieces of documentation for their kids. And none of us, none of the participants of AKA, and I've been going to conferences there for 15 years because <laughs> two years before my daughter was in my life and nine years on the board, I haven't even heard one parent say, you know, that they didn't want to, to parent from truth. So I think that those who believe in that, um, who are not centered in fear, and that fear was a bill of goods. I mean, it was a bad deal, right? Like mm-hmm. when they were, there's, there are adoptees that don't even know they're adopted, right? Because right. they were told, oh, you know, what if people know that you adopted your kid? You're not, a, you're not sufficient. You're not enough. You're not empowered to be a parent. So I think when you come from, and luckily 90% of adoptions are now open and there's some form of openness, we're very blessed to be in that era. So I think people who are kind of stuck, really, um, maybe they're stuck a little bit in that old paradigm that um, I don't really encounter parents who are adopted parents now or who have even, you know, for instance, my best friend is adopted and, and reunited in her 30s and Initially, she was very lost in this loyalty of, oh, will my mom be okay with it, you know? And her mother initially was was concerned and worried about her, right? And then initially, mm-hmm. initially that, that was the case, and then it passed. And what she wanted for Annie was wholeness, you know? So if you come from that position of nurture and you come from that compassion, I am so lucky that I can, you know, connect with my daughter's first mom, Right. I have a right. very blessed situation, but but knowing that, again, as Ann said, it comes from love, you know, so knowing the truth that someone did this very sacrificial thing, and it, you know, regardless of how hard all the different aspects of it are hard for us, we share grief, we share loss. At the end of the day, truth empowers everyone. And so I, you know, that's what I hear the most. You know, so I am strongly in favor, and I find that the most educated and sensitive and compassionate adoptive parents really do support their adult children having everything that they want. You know, you're we're supposed to raise empowered adults. <laughs> my daughter said the other night, "I'm learning to be an adult." You know, so it's not my job to manage her truth. It's my job to help her process what that is and what that is for her. Um, and if we want to raise adults, we're not supposed to grab the wheel of the car, right? We have to, you know, pass that over to them. So when they're an adult, it's our job to let them tell us what they need. Um, yeah, that's what I'm going to say about that. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Don. Oh, that's <laughs> great. Thank you. I appreciate all you do as an adoptive parent, too. I think that's wonderful. Uh, just a personal side note. I'm kind of sharing in between my own story because listeners ask me all the time. So just to share a little feedback on that note, that why I appreciate that so much is because when it came time to tell my own adoptive parents, my biological mother found me, we're reunited now. It was so emotional, like you can imagine for anyone, but I, I had one parent each of a mixed view. I had 
the one fa- the father, my dad, my papa, who wanted nothing to do with it, was just so hurt and so upset. And yet my mother, the first thing she said, the most beautiful message I'll never forget, she said was, well, now you have more people to love you, Shell. So mm. it was very confusing to have the mother so supportive, but the, the father, you know, my father in so much mm-hmm. fear and hurt. Yeah. So it's I fear of loss. It's fear of loss. Yeah. And, and, and that lo- those losses happened before, and if they're not processed, they stay there. And they, you know, we were all told, not we, many adoptive parents were, you know, just left with that. Like, you know, keep this secret, you know, protect it. You're not empowered. You're not legitimate. It's a, it's a very delegitimizing process, too, for adoptive parents that they go through, you know, because not everyone, but but some do come to this after infertility issues or other losses. And, you know, you have to process all that grief or you're not really ready, you know, to parent and not to say that that was for your dad, but the fear of losing some kind of legitimacy is, is real, you know, because they made this piece of paper the only thing that connected you and everyone knows that's not true, right? right. You know, love, is what connects, love is what gives us the power to parent, but um, and you can't live with fear and you can't live with these betrayals, you know, that they're, they're just lingering and we need to get rid of it. So I'm proud. I'm proud of your parents for coming together for you. And I know that, you know, that um, it's very healing. I think we, we want to heal these things together. And when we can do that together, we become much stronger. That's actually the power of AK because it brings all three sides together. And, and you cannot imagine what it feels like to hear some of these truths for the first time, you know, um, Most definitely. it's made me just a much more sensitive parent. So sorry. It's, it's Susan's son. <laughs> Oh, no, it's great, Dawn. Thank you again. Thank you. And, Susan, would you like to share your thoughts about adoptive parents yeah. reporting? Yeah, I just want to echo what, what Dawn said. I, I'm i concerned for what's best for my kids, what's best for their emotional health. And, um, I mean, the the information surrounding their birth is not going to change my relationship with them. Uh, they will always have two sets of parents. And I support them having access to their history, just like those who aren't adopted have access to a document that isn't that that is also a part of their history. Sorry, <laughs> but um, I, I just want what's best for them, and I'm I'm glad that most adoptions now are are open. Most people have uh, some sort of contact. I mean, the data supports that. So I think most people go into adoptions now uh, with that attitude that it's best for for their kids, and that's what everybody ultimately wants. So that's that's all I have to add. Thank you, Susan. Appreciate that. And Joellen, can you tell mm-hmm. us how how can everyone get involved to to pass this bill? Thanks for asking that question, Shell. Um, we have a lot of things going on. Um, there's a lot of things you can do online. Uh, we have a website, www.texasadopterights.org, and you can join both our mailing list or make a donation there. Um, we also have uh, both Facebook and Twitter accounts. Our Facebook group is Support Texas Adoptee Rights Star, and you can join the Facebook page and become a member, you know, just, just, just support that. Um, Occasionally we'll post things up there about needing funds for specific things that we're, we're doing or events that we're running. Um, our Twitter account is Texas Adoptee Rights. Um, if you're going to be in Austin 
on March 11th. That's our lobby day. And that's a day when people can come to the Capitol. We'll have tables set up and we'll be getting information out to the people who work in the Capitol um, and uh, people who um, are from out of town can come. And we'll have a meeting in the morning where we'll talk with everyone about here's how you can, here's how you go talk to your legislator and you can go meet with your senator or the senator staff or your representative or the representative staff and just talk to them about why this bill is important to you. And um, that's again uh, Monday, March 11th um, at the Texas Capitol in Austin. Awesome. Thank you so much. A lot, sure. a lot of great ways to get involved there. And I have a um, question also, for... Wait, can I ask one, can I add sure. one more thing? And yeah. if you can't come to that, writing your legislator or write, you know, writing your senator, writing your House member and letting them know that you are a constituent of theirs, that you voted for them, and that you want them to, to support this bill um, is really, really important. Thanks. Oh, definitely. No, that's important. I'm glad you mentioned that. Don't want to look over that. Definitely contact your legislators. I know I have personally called and emailed all of mine and will continue uh-huh. to do that. So it's just yeah. as as picking up a phone or just sending a note by email. It's that easy. So, yes, yeah. please do that. Everything all. works. Yeah. yeah. All the channels work. Every channel, every one of those channels works. They They listen. The calls matter. You know, the tweets matter. Just support. Just tell them that you're in support of it, and constituents have all the power for sure. Definitely. Yep. Thank you, Don. Yes, and, and if I'm a- 54 years old and can start using Twitter, anyone can. <laughs> <laughs> Never too late. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for all of you now. And I'll I'll just address each of your names as we go here. But the question for all of you is, how has this advocacy effort inspired each of you beyond the legislative work? Let's start with Marcy. Wow. Um, So I know that I have um, – the legislative advocacy pretty much takes up all my time. (laughs) So uh, it's hard to say how is it impacted. But what what I have – what it what it's done for me is I have stored in my brain um, an incredible amount of personal stories from other people that I carry with me. You know when I uh, when I go to the Capitol and I um, you know I I know that those are going to be with me forever and they're going to inform how I interact in the world and, and who I you know just how I carry those stories, I carry them so carefully and I, I really treasure that people have entrusted me with their, with their stories. And um, one of the things that splintered off uh, of Texas Adoptee Rights was another group called Texas DNA and Adoptee Search Support. And um, it's a group where adoptees can go uh, on Facebook and get resources about how to petition the court or how to... Um, you know, how to, what the laws are in regard to, to obtaining your original birth certificates if you do know the names and what that process looks like. Um, so I, I have been involved in um, just on the periphery in, um, in that group and, and I'm inspired by the stories that I see in that group. That's a great group for adoptees listening to this and wondering how they can further their own um, uh, uh, obtaining of information 
whether it be search related or just getting a copy of the original birth certificate. Um, that's a really great resource out there, and that's, that's something that really inspires me and excites me when I think about other things that have come from this effort. Awesome. Thank you, Marcy. What about you, Don? Um, three things. Uh, number one, it has just given me more courage and inspired me to become more involved and active in really all a lot more aspects of politics. Um, it, I don't have, I'm not as intimidated by the whole legislative process. Not that I really was, but it, it just gives me more confidence. And then the other thing, and it's just that I've fallen in love with the beauty of our capital. Uh, moving to Austin, I, I moved here um, in, two, in 1999, 2000, and um, we just are so lucky to live here, and I feel like every time I go to the Capitol, I fall in love with the architecture. I notice the details. My daughter laughs at me because I take these, she calls them my artsy-fartsy pictures. Like, another picture of a doorknob, really? And I'm like, I know, but it's really the details. It really is the details. We are, you know, it's living, it's artwork. It's, it's the Capitol itself. It's the living aspect of the law that... Um, I'm just in love with it, so it kind of has making me fall in love with Austin all over again. And um, as a, I just have lived here for 25 years, so I think I'm fixing to get some boots, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> Thank you, Don <laughs> and Ron. Mm-hmm. What? How has this advocacy effort inspired you beyond the legislative work, Rod? Rod, are you there? I- I think we lost Rod. He's still on my queue. No, I'm here. There you are. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No worries. Yeah, I was muted there. Um, uh, yes, beyond the legislative work, it really helped to um, expand my perspective on actually life uh, and well, I, I guess that's that's one thing uh, that's been so important to me. And the second is uh, that it really has helped me to to grow uh, as a person and to think uh, more broadly, um, just uh, about human nature. Um, uh, it, it, it's just been, and, oh, I have to reflect here a little bit about uh, what Dawn said, uh, giving uh, her uh, the uh, courage, the confidence, and so on. Now, I'm, I'm a very introverted kind of guy, and, and uh, I, it was uh, boot-shaking, rattling for me to go into an office and say hi. Uh, but I finally got over that. And uh, uh, so this is, it, it's been an incredible experience. Learn all about government and all the nasty ways in which it works and doesn't work and that heavy. Yeah. Thank you, so, Rod. Yeah. Appreciate it. And we've still got four, four more of you to go on this question, and we've got a few questions still left to go, so we're going to kind of 
get go a little brief here. I apologize. Right, to expedite here. So, Anne, can you briefly answer that same question for me? Sure. I think it's just written really illuminating. I mean, I think anybody who's involved in adoption understands it's very complex. And I've been at work on a book. I have a super delightful reunion with my um, adult daughter. And um, what I've done as a result of working on this issue is to incorporate more of the more, you know, issues about like birth certificate, you know, lack of access and, and, and really specific things into the book so I can help raise awareness, um, you know, of adoption issues in a bigger way. Thank you, Anne. And Sherry, what about you? Uh, because I was able to uh, search and find my own family and then help other adoptees search, um, I've seen enough reunions now that as soon as I come across someone, I'm able to tell them that I know they're going to find their truth out, that that even if they don't get the birth certificate, they're going to be able to eventually find their truth. And that's what I, I remember myself not having access to people to any sort of community that had that experience. I felt like I was all alone in the world in this search. And I feel like now I'm able to um, give people hope that they can, um, you know, get their, their searches complete, completed. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Sherry. And Joellen, what about you? Yeah, I would just say it has inspired me to open up a whole world of knowledge that I knew nothing about, which is all the political things. And um, I, I would also say uh, because of having to wait so long at the elevator at the Capitol, it's inspired me to take stairs more. That's it. I bonus. And Susan. Oh, gosh. I, I think everyone has has said pretty much everything, but I'm so much more aware of current events, not only in uh, in our country, but just statewide. I am so I am so in tune to what's going on, and um, and that's great. I know how a law is made. I know how hard it is to walk those halls and and talk to people, and uh, and it, it may be hard, but it's. I, I don't know. You you can do it. Anybody can do it. And I love no. I love that that anybody can go in and just walk in those doors, and 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 speak to what what they want to happen. And I wasn't really I wasn't really in tune to that before. So that's that's all I've got. <laughs> oh, that's a great message. I appreciate that. Thank you, Susan. It's good for everybody to hear that. And mm-hmm. another group question. We're just gonna go one by one, brief. Answer is here, please. But uh, start with Marcy here. What do you hope will be the ultimate cause effect from this, not only for Texas, but all states? What do you think, Marcy? Well, we've been saying that Texas is almost sort of a tipping point. It's, you know, there's quite a number of states that have passed similar legislation. Uh, some, some stronger versions than others. We'll just leave it at that for tonight. Um, but Texas is, is a large state. Uh, it impacts, um, this bill will potentially impact 700,000 Texas-born adoptees, roughly, approximately. Um, so you can see it impacts a, a, a greater number than a lot of the other states that have passed this. I think um, New Jersey, my home state, was like 325 or 350,000. So the estimates are, are much higher, and so we do we do hope that once Texas goes, so goes the nation, right? Um, and that we can be part of that that tipping point. Oh, I hope so too, Marcy. And Don, what are your thoughts on this? Um, you know, tipping point is, is 
awesome. This, I also feel that, that really if this means that everyone who wants it can have a day one of their life story, right? If we all have a story to live, um, you should have day one, page one of your story, and that, that should be for everyone. I love that. Page one, day one. That's right. Thank you, Don. And Rod, what about you? Um, well, I would hope that people would um, really give some more thought to how to what it is to be human. Um, you know, just to think about how people are treated and so on. Uh, yeah, make a better world for us all. Indeed. Yeah. Thank you, Rod. Yes, sir. And Anne, what do you hope? Yeah, I think in general, I just hope it really helps toward the effort of destigmatizing, um, you know, issues around adoption and creates more conversation. I think this is just another way of, you know, also generating a bigger conversation about adoption. So. Most definitely. Thank you, Anne. And Sherry, what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I hope by Texas passing this law, it will just be the impetus for all states to pass and for the entire um, issue of birth certificates being sealed to be a complete non-issue that each of us um, has the, the civil right to have access to documents. I hope so, too, Sherry. Thank you. And Joellen? I would, uh, I think, uh, both what Dawn and what Sherry said really struck me, this idea of, you know, the first day, the first hour, it's your first medical document, and everyone should have a right to that. And then it seems like, a, you know, a civil right, because, you know, people are just being treated differently for no reason other than the circumstance of our birth. Exactly. Beyond their control. Thank you, Joellen. Mm-hmm. And Susan, mm-hmm. what do you hope? Oh, my goodness. I Open records for all. I mean, it, it really just comes down to a group of people being treated differently under the law and needs to be changed. And um, it hopefully Texas can inspire other other states to do it as well, just like everybody said. Most definitely. I, I mean, the great big state of Texas, y'all. <laughs> I think there's hope for <laughs> Texas being the lead. Great example. Star of destiny. Come on, we have to light up the whole country, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Marcy, how many more steps do you think it will take before this ultimate goal will be achieved? Well, that sort of feels like a trick question. Um they so the way the way that most legislatures work, including the one in Texas, is they make it very difficult to get a law passed. I went to a recently went to a seminar um, that Representative Howard and Representative Sirier were presenting at, and that was the message was that they've they've made it hard on purpose because we don't want it to be easy to pass a law, right? We don't want it to be easy to change the laws. So even though we feel a tremendous amount of optimism and all the ingredients are in place with an excellent bill sponsor and lost a huge groundswell of support from constituents, um, there's a lot. There's a lot that um, there's a lot of hurdles to get through in this very fast and furious thing that we call the Texas Legislative Session. We have 
really, uh, let's see, uh, March, April, May, and that's it. And then we're done, and we got to start all over again. So, um, so it's sort of anybody's guess every session whether any bill is going to pass. Our bill has some unique challenges in that we do have a senator that that does. Um, actively oppose it. We do hope that she comes around this session and takes a hard look at the data and and just really um, understands the changing or really the changed landscape that we're currently living in. Uh, one thing that we, we failed to address before, but it was the Texas registry, um, the Texas adoption registry, many of the birth parents that were relinquished their children relinquished under the laws that they would have been able to gain access. So a lot of birth parents didn't register because they thought that their children would have access when they reached 18. Some of the birth parents signed contracts that said, I promise I will never search for my child. And so they're actually waiting to be contacted. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of complicated things that are going on with, with the law as it is. And um, and so we really do hope that Senator Campbell can take a really hard look at at what the 21st century has brought, what what's so problematic with the registry, what's so problematic with denying people equal rights, um, and and really search her heart and and uh, and come around to understanding that um, that what's good for you know that's what's good for adoptees. Uh, is is um, you know is good for everyone. Adoptee rights are human rights, uh, as we like to say. Most so. no, definitely. Thank you, Marcy. And Joellen, I'd, I'd like to ask a, a last question on a positive note here. Mm-hmm. What is your message of hope for adopt adult adoptees in the meantime? Well, I, I was thinking about this in terms of how do people get through tough times and hard times where their inequities that they are subject to. Um, And I think the first thing to realize is that people are working hard on this, and we're not the only people who are working hard on this. And there's legislators working hard on it, and, you know, you're you're working on this by having it on your your radio shell. And um, so I think that's the first thing, is just to realize there's people out there who are working on this, and we're working hard and giving our blood, sweat, and tears the other thing is, if you're feeling hopeless, you have things that you can do, and I talked about those already. You can get involved. You can come to the state capitol. You can write your legislators. And a lot of times doing those things and then, like, getting on Facebook and sharing it in the Support Texas Adoptee Rights Group. Hey, I just wrote my legislators. You'll get support for that, and you'll feel better. Um, and I think that gives people a message, hope. And And that really gets to my final thing that I think about this is that, well, things are difficult like this. Um, we're plugging along. We're doing, you know, all the stuff we have to do every day just to get by and to live our lives and do our jobs. And then we're doing this as well. And um, what I what I get out of this is that I'm working with these other people who are passionately committed to this, and I'm connected to them, and that gives me so much hope. And so I think that knowing that. You know, even if you just write a letter and like something on Facebook or send something out on Twitter, that you're connecting with people 
who um, are sharing their love of truth and honesty and transparency and um, that these people that you're connected to, whether you're in person or online, they're going to help you get through this. And so that's my message of hope. That's wonderful. Thank you, Joel, and so much. And yeah, thank you all. Yeah. Thank you, Marcy, Don, Rod, and Sherry, Joel, and Ann, Susan. Thank you all so much for taking the time, two hours of, of your time tonight. I know it's valuable once again. And, and just sharing the information and spreading knowledge and, and encouraging others because it does take, you know, teamwork to make dream work and get this bill passed and make it pass legislation this time for once and for all. And for everyone listening, uh, a couple of notes. Make sure, again, to check out their website, Support Texas Adoptees Rights, also known as STAR. Check out STAR's website at www.texas, spelled out, texasadopterights.org. Also follow them on Twitter, TX Adoptee Rights, as well as Facebook, Support Texas Adoptee Rights Star and find them on Facebook page. Uh, a couple of things on that note. If you have any questions, please feel free, free excuse me, to reach out to Star again via Twitter, Texas TX, Text Adopt the Rights, and again on their Facebook, Support Texas Adopt the Rights Star Facebook page. And a, again, I encourage each and everyone to go to their website. There's a great press release all about the new bill. And that, again, is at TexasAdoptyRights.org. You can also message me anytime. I know sometimes listeners like to message me privately, especially topics like this. So please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm always happy to forward on questions. And that's Coffee Talk WC on Twitter. I apologize. I had, I had hoped to also get uh, questions callers tonight but we just we just had a lot to get to so if anyone's open to a a follow-up interview after some time to get some questions in i'd be more than happy to do that as well is there anyone that would like to share any last minute thoughts as we wrap up we have about four minutes left yeah i would if if this is dawn um i wanted to first of all thank you so so much shell for making this opportunity available to us um, knowing you from your past speaking at AKA as a reunited adoptee and you just always so positive. And I wanted to thank you for that. And I also wanted to say that besides supporting us, if everyone could, who wants to uh, share in this would help support uh, representative Gina Kalani um, and go to her page and go to um, all of her accounts and support her and let her know that you are so thrilled <laughs> that she is taking up this flag as a freshman, just newly. She's a brand new uh, representative and has already shown such courage. It's, you know, the, the Women's History Month, and I think she's hopefully going to make history. So let's just show her our So that's my other. Yeah, the, and the other issue that uh, Representative Kalani really champions and goes hand in hand is, is human trafficking. And um, yeah. one of the things that we feel passionately about is that sealed records also does harbor criminal activity. When records are sealed, it's difficult to know the nature of that adoption. And, and though black market adoptions, you know, aren't prevalent, they aren't the majority of adoptions, uh, sealed records does play a hand in having in the past made those black market adoptions possible. So our issue sort of couples with some of the other issues that she feels really passionately about and strongly about. And, um, and so this kind of fits in um, into her portfolio besides her, her own connection to adoption. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's very insightful. Thank, thank you. you and both. thank you, Shell. Yeah. 
thanks for having us. Really, this is such a great opportunity to, to talk about the issue, and um, it's just just fantastic. And the two-hour time frame was it worked out perfectly. I feel like we touched on, uh, at least touched so on everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a start. So much to cover, that's for sure. Thank y'all. And yeah, and Don, I'm glad you Yes, me and Murphy. And Don, I'm glad you mentioned Gina Kalani. I just wanted to give everyone her Twitter name as well so they yeah. can follow follow her. And it's G I N A underscore C A L A N N I and like Nancy. So again, Gina underscore Kalani. And you also can go to her website, which is GinaKalani.com. So definitely please follow her and support her. Reach out to her as well. So thank you all so much once again. Uh, I appreciate all of you, each and every one of you, Marcy, Don, Rod, and Sherry, Joellen, and Susan. Thank you all. You've been amazing. And uh, this will be archived. So if anyone's just now tuning in or tuned in midway through, no worries. This is a podcast on iTunes as well as archived on blogtalkradio.com. So it will be here forevermore. (laughs) And, uh, again, reach out to us with any questions. Thank you all so much again. Thank you. Have a great night. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Thank you all. Again, this is Shell tuning off or logging off. That is now. I'll say it again. So I'll be logging off here in a moment. I have about ten seconds to go. Just want to say thank you all again for tuning in to Coffee Talk with Shell, where there's always variety in life. And hope you'll keep tuning in Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Central Time. Again, you've been listening to my interview with Star Support Texas Adoptee Rights. They're an amazing group, and I encourage you to follow them and reach out to them. Thank you again. Have a wonderful week ahead. Love and peace. This is Shell signing off now.